You're listening to Yo, This Can't Be Life, the podcast that aims to educate and inform Black women on how to take better care of their physical, mental, and financial health. I'm your host, Bree Montgomery, and I'm inviting you to join me as I interview resident experts to find out the cheat codes to living your best life. The information provided is intended to be general advice and should not be considered medical advice. For that, please consult your medical professional. Hey guys, I know if you're looking at the title, you're like, whoa, we have way too much going on here. But in our guest chair today, we have an immunologist and an allergist. And I thought, how could we not ask all the questions we can about COVID-19 as well as the allergy information? So today in the guest chair, we have Akila Jefferson Shaw, MD, who is an assistant professor of pediatrics at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences College of Medicine, allergy and immunology section. Prior to this appointment, she was faculty at University of California, San Diego at Rady Children's Hospital, San Diego. She completed her allergy and immunology fellowship at National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and residency in internal medicine at the George University Hospital in Washington, D.C. She received her medical degree from Tulane University School of Medicine and her B.A. in bioethics from Brown University. Dr. Jefferson Shaw is also an expert in health policy and bioethics, completing postgraduate training in both fields at Georgetown University and the National Institutes of Health, respectively. In addition to clinical care, her work focuses on the intersections of healthcare, clinical research, health disparities, health policy, and ethics. Her research is supported by the Arkansas Children's Research Institute and Arkansas Biosciences Institute. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw to the show. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into this field? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, So I am from New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm the youngest of five girls there. I, um, you know, went to high school there and then left for college, uh, returned for medical school. Um, So I'm a Southern girl at heart. My background really is in internal medicine, but I also work with children a lot these days and um, allergy and immunology specifically. The focus on asthma, health disparities, health equity, and bioethics. So I got into my field, you know, initially because I have really bad allergies and asthma. Growing up, I always suffered from seasonal allergies, particularly during the springtime. And as I went on in school, I just found it very interesting that some people had these problems while other people didn't. So that sort of sparked my interest in studying allergies, but also studying the immune system. Oh, wow. Great. Talking about allergies, more people have allergies now than they used to. Do you think that there's any particular reason why that's happening or has there been any research to show why um, that seems to be occurring more frequently now? Mm -hmm. So I, I always tell my patients that that's like the million dollar question. If we could figure that out, you know, with a hundred percent certainty, um, we would be able to kind of solve everything. But the the jury is still out. The data is still being collected. So far, we think that some of it has to do with um, industrialization and kind of um, 
increasing development, increasing things like hygiene in certain places of the world. So for instance, in places like the U.S. and the U.K., we have much higher rates of allergies than they do in, say, sub-Saharan Africa or India. And we think part of it is, you know, we use different kinds of supplies in our everyday living, whether that's hand sanitizer, certain types of soaps, bleach everywhere, things like that, that kind of kill the good stuff in our environment that um, stimulate our immune system in a, in a good way so that we don't um, have over responses or heightened responses to allergens in the environment or to food allergens. The other thing is that there is some data out there that shows possibly the way that we process our foods could have something to do with it. And then the third thing really are other environmental factors like pollution um, and things of that nature, air quality that really impact the way that things grow outside, the way that food kind of um, comes to be and the way that we process those foods. Oh, wow. So that's really interesting. The culmination of our environment uh, impacting something such as an allergy is a new concept, but it totally makes sense to me. And talking about one of the first points that you said with that, uh, the cleanliness and everything like that, now that we're encouraged to wash our hands a lot more often and use hand sanitizer a lot more often than we used to, do you feel like that could have a negative effect in the future on people developing even more allergies? I think it is definitely possible. As far as this thing is called the hygiene hypothesis in allergy, as far as that goes, it doesn't look to be something that happens over kind of one lifetime. It seems mm-hmm. to be kind of a cumulative thing over populations. So, you know, it's hard to say within my lifetime or your lifetime that it's going to have a huge impact. But we do know, for instance, that there's some studies showing that women who are pregnant on farms, their children tend to have less allergies than um, women who were pregnant in cities, for instance. And they think that that's because of different bacteria, viruses, fungus that's present on farms in addition to different animals and things like that, that actually are protective in a way for some people and and prevent them or kind of lessen the risk of them getting allergies versus someone who does not grow up around those things. So, you know, with all that said, it's hard to predict exactly how, number one, being inside all the time with COVID-19, number two, you know, hand sanitizer and soap and bleaching everything and Clorox wiping everything, how all that's going to have an impact. But I think that um, your kind of hunch is right, that it probably will. We'll just have to see over time what that is. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. And continuing to talk about COVID-19, I know that right now we're, well, not we, but, you know, the U.S. has a lot of people and even worldwide working on vaccines and they're doing a lot of research on um, immunity and antibodies and things like that. I've heard that people with a strong response still have antibodies that pretty much leave after a few months. Does that mean that it throws away the whole herd immunity concept that I know we were banking on at one point? It's Very complicated. And I say that, I wish you could see me because I'm smiling. So the immune system in general is fascinating, but it's very, very complicated. There are lots of moving parts. So uh, as far as immunity with COVID, 
you know, there are a few things to think about. You mentioned one, which is that immune response, which is kind of how the body responds after it's uh, stimulated by something like a virus like COVID-19. And then the second question is immunity. That's like a long lasting response or protection against whatever that uh, virus or bacteria is. So, so far for COVID, we know that people can have really strong immune responses. That's kind of been shown as far as blood tests go and antibody levels and things like that. But the immunity question is still kind of out there. Initial studies are showing that most people, their antibody levels, so those are those protective um, substances our body makes after an infection, those antibody levels go up really high, which is good. And then after a few months, so like two to three months max, they start to come down. That is not uncommon for a respiratory virus, but it, you know, lets us know that COVID-19 is something that is probably going to behave like other respiratory viruses, other coronaviruses, things like the flu, where you don't have long-lasting immunity to it. Um, if that is the case, then we have to think of other ways to either boost immunity, so that could be through vaccines, or to, um, to really kind of address long-lasting um, possible exposures to it, minimizing exposures, wearing masks, hand washing, all those kinds of things. Herd immunity is going to be, I think, difficult, and that's mostly because herd immunity, they're predicting for COVID-19, um, it's going to require about 70 to 80% of the population to be immune to COVID-19. So just to explain, herd immunity is basically when whatever the infection is, is at such a high prevalence or immunity to it is at such a high prevalence in the population that it cannot spread anymore. So for instance, gotcha. measles, everyone gets a, or not everyone, most people get a measles shot, um, a vaccine when they're little. And if enough people get it, even if one person got measles, they can't spread it to the rest of us because we're immune to it. So it kind of, kind of stops it in its tracks. That's what we need for um, for highly infectious disease processes like COVID-19. But if I'm saying 70 to 80% of the population needs to be immune, that's going to require a lot of moving parts to make that happen. Um, the best way to get people immune to something is really through vaccine. The other way to get them immune is to um, have them get the infection, which we don't want, uh, especially in this case with such bad outcomes. So we would need at least, you know, 70% of the population to be vaccinated in order to hit that herd immunity standpoint. And then going back to the point of if those antibodies only last a few months, then we might require kind of repeat vaccinations over time, similar to how a flu shot would be to an annual vaccine or something similar. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. To kind of pivot back to the allergy talk, mm -hmm. I know that... There are the common things like swelling and hives and that kind of thing with allergies, but those kind of symptoms can occur even if you don't have a full-blown allergy. So I'm finding out that there are some people, when we're talking about food, who can have sensitivities, intolerances, or allergies. So... What are the differences between those? So it's a really good question. Allergies in general are 
an immune regulated process. And when I say that, it's it means that something external usually stimulates your immune system to overreact and it produces something called immunoglobulin type E or IgE, which then can bind to different types of cells in your body. The most predominant one is something called a mast cell, M-A-S-T cell, which release all these mediators that make you itch and sneeze and swell and all of that. Intolerances and sensitivities are not immune regulated, meaning they are not immunoglobulin type E regulated processes. Um, sometimes we know the process that causes it, sometimes we don't. And so those are very hard in many cases to um, diagnose. They're more sort of diagnoses of exclusion, meaning we've said it's not allergy, it's not, you know, whatever other process, so then it must be an intolerance or sensitivity. Right now, as far as testing goes for allergies, um, in particular food allergies, there's pretty good testing. We have two different types usually. One is called skin testing or skin prick testing, where we literally can take the protein from that food and scratch your skin and look for a hive in that area that we scratched. And it's a positive test. And it has a very high um, positive predictive value, meaning if the test is positive, then you're very likely to have the allergy. If the test is negative, then you're very unlikely to have the allergy. Another type of test is a blood test where we can measure that immunoglobulin type E that is specific to whatever the food in question is um, and determine if you have allergies that way. For sensitivities and intolerances, as far as like testing goes, it's really hard. Um, there are two that people are probably very um, familiar with. One is lactose intolerance and another is gluten intolerance. Um, so for lactose intolerance, it's a sensitivity to the sugar, lactose, uh, which is found in cow's milk. And for gluten, it's a sensitivity to the gluten itself. Um, if you measured or tried to measure, you know, lactose or gluten or whatever, it's quite hard to kind of find a good, uh, sensitive and um, predictable measure. So testing is really, really hard for those things. But we usually kind of diagnose that based on symptoms and then again on diagnoses of exclusion. For most intolerances, we get gastrointestinal symptoms like diarrhea, stomach cramps, things like that. It's a little more unusual to get hives and swelling and difficulty breathing, though not impossible. And um, sort of the same for sensitivity. Sensitivities are even, I would say, more nebulous. It's really hard to pin down exactly what they are. But sometimes we'll say if you take the food out and you feel better, then it's most likely a sensitivity if we can't measure it via the, those allergy tests I mentioned. Or if you put the food back in and you start to have symptoms again, then that probably is a line with an intolerance or a sensitivity. Okay. So if you have an allergy and you did the skin test, you're saying like if you did the blood test, then you probably wouldn't find anything that you did in the skin test or is that just another way to do it like would you do both it's another way to do it so um the way i explain it to my patients a lot of times is skin testing gives me kind of like a yes no answer it doesn't give me any gray zone so if i scratch it like for instance i'm, I'm allergic to certain treatments i'm allergic to walnuts and pecans if i scratch my skin with the uh, walnut skin test then i'm going to get a hive a big hive in that area that I scratch. That's a positive test. It does not, however, tell me how allergic I am. It's not really a good predictor of that. Sometimes we say the bigger the skin test, the more um, allergic you are, but that doesn't 
blood testing a lot of times can help figure that gray area out as far as how allergic you are because it gives you a range. It's not just a yes, no answer. It can give you um, certain values that tells me exactly how much specific IgE that I have to walnut floating in my blood. If my number is 100, that's really high versus if my number is like 1 or 2. Um, so it, it can give you, a, it can kind of predict just with a little bit more um, sensitivity what the person's allergy really looks like without having to, you know, give them the food and see what happens. Okay. So that would be something you would give once you saw a reaction. Would you give it to someone if you didn't see a reaction at all? Would there be a need for a blood test at that point? I usually would not unless, okay. um, unless the history is really suggestive of the allergy and I think my skin test is faulty in some way. But okay. usually, you know, if, if the test is kind of correlating with the history and I can rule out the allergy, then I don't go further with those blood tests. Okay. With intolerances, you said that they're more digestive in nature. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. something that's always going to be the case, or is it something that maybe if you eliminate it for a certain time, your body will be able to handle it differently after a while, or is it something that's you know going to stay that way? Yeah, that's um, that's a really good question too. So sometimes over time, people can start to tolerate things that they once could not tolerate. Why is really, we don't know exactly why that happens. But so for instance, in babies, sometimes we'll see that they have cow milk intolerances. So like a baby who's, you're just starting to give them cow milk. They might have diarrhea. They might get really funny looking poops and things like that. You take that cow milk out of their diet and try again, either a few weeks or a few months later. And a lot of times most babies can tolerate it after that point and they don't have any trouble with the cow milk anymore. Again, we're not exactly sure why that happens. We think sometimes it's like maturing of the GI system or, you know, there are other things in your gastrointestinal tract, good bacteria, bad bacteria, viruses, and fungus, all the, we call it the microbiome that's in there that can change over time. We think that that has probably something to do with, um, and some people have intermittent intolerances, like after you take a an antibiotic and you kill off a lot of those micro, good microbiome in your GI tract. You can not tolerate some foods, um, but then once your microbiome kind of gets back to normal, you can start to tolerate the foods again. Okay. So when you mention the microbiome, I hear that word a lot with the whole leaky gut concept. Mm-hmm. So would that be the same thing like you're having problems with a leaky gut, or if you will, or a lot of inflammation. So once you get that under control and intolerance or something like that may not be an issue after that bad season, would that be the same thing? Right. So sometimes that can be the case, not always, but sometimes if you kind of get the, um, the balance in the GI tract back, uh, back on track, then um, then you can resolve some of those issues. There are some people, however, that have kind of chronic leaky gut syndromes where mm-hmm. it's more than just the microbiome that's kind of um, off balance. And so in those cases, you know, there are lots of other, like I mentioned, the immune system is so complicated. There are lots of other um, areas 
that are that are impacted that are causing symptoms and causing reactions and intolerances too. Oh, okay. All right. So with the sensitivities, intolerances, and allergies, if I understand correctly, there is a histamine issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about how histamine um, plays into your body's reaction to those things? Mm -hmm. So histamine, that's one of those um, mediators I mentioned that are, that's kind of uh, released from mast cells and other similar cells in the immune system after you have an inflammatory response. The most common thing is if I'm allergic to walnuts and I eat a walnut, my body, that IgE, that specific IgE I mentioned, is going um, to basically link up to that walnut that I ate. It's going to then travel to something called uh, mast cells and other type cells. They're going to link to that, and then those mast cells are going to release histamine. The histamine is going to make me have difficulty breathing. It's going to make me break out into hives. It's going to make me um, swell, uh, in some cases have stomach aches, throw up, diarrhea, all those things. That's all called anaphylaxis, like severe allergic reactions. And other, you know, that's a known mechanism. Other things like intolerances and sensitivity, sometimes you have histamine that drives it, but a lot of times you don't. And okay. that's kind of what makes it very difficult to, to diagnose. So I know that if I have IgE that's, that is uh, binds to mast cells, that that's going to cause histamine to be released. And I mentioned that allergies are an IgE-mediated process. For non-IgE-mediated processes like intolerances and sensitivities, the exact mechanism by which all these things happen is so unclear that we think histamine is being released, and sometimes it's measurable, but to be honest, um, the tests that measure histamine release are not all that accurate. They can mm. be done via blood tests or, um, or urine tests. They're not very, very accurate. We think histamine is being released, but we also think that other mediators that are similar to histamine are probably being released in those cases, causing inflammation that's very similar when you look at it to an allergic reaction. But the underlying mechanism, you know, is unclear although we know it's not an IgE-mediated mechanism. Okay. So then in that case, pretty much with intolerances and sen sensitivities, it's more likely that you'll find out more information with something like an elimination diet? Absolutely. Yep. So that's really the one of the big go-tos is to see what happens when you take that food out of your diet. Usually before an elimination diet, I'll start with a food diary and say, okay. I want you to, um, you know, if, if you just eat your normal diet and on a day that you feel bad or you feel like you've had a reaction, I want you to write down everything you ate for the few hours before the reaction happened and, you know, right before the reaction happened. And then we try to figure out patterns. So like if it's every Tuesday, I feel bad and every Tuesday I eat, you know, a, a donut then I start to think, okay, maybe it's the donut that's doing it or something that's in that donut that's doing it. And so I want you to take donuts out of your diet. But sometimes it's not clear. Uh, we can't find really good patterns with those food diaries. And so then I'll do kind of what's called an empiric 
uh, elimination diet, which is taking out the most common foods known to cause food allergies and or food sensitivities. Um, so those would be things like milk, eggs, wheat, gluten, peanuts, tree nuts, soy, um, and kind of see if we can figure out what's causing the problem there. Okay. Now I know that, um, that they're like some food sensitivity tests, but then there's like some controversy on whether they're helpful or not. What are your thoughts on those? They are not helpful. (laughs) (laughs) So here's what I'm, here's going to be my, I guess my nice way of saying it. Food intolerance testing. And I'm going to say, except for there's some uh, lactose intolerance testing that may be useful um, and the same for gluten that, that may be useful. And then there's also celiac disease, which is a separate type of gluten um, intolerance related to an autoimmune problem. It's okay. Separate. But generally speaking, there are tests out there on the market called IgG, so immunoglobulin type G um, tests that are marketed for food sensitivity and food intolerance testing. There's lots of data lots of studies that have been done that show that those tests are not accurate, that they're not reproducible, meaning if I took the test today and then I took it, you know, next week, I could get different results. And so based on all of that, they're not recommended by um, most allergists for use for diagnosis of food intolerances and sensitivities. Matter of fact, the, so we have, you know, different professional societies, most most um, specialties do that kind of go over controversial issues um, with great detail so that we have a consensus on what is out there, what information is out there, what information is good or bad, or, you know, where there are gaps in data that we need. And in the past few years, since there've been a lot of these IgG tests that have come out on the market, and by the way, they're not really well-regulated by the FDA in the way that mm-hmm. many other tests are. For those IgG tests, we've come out with several statements, uh, the Allergy Specialty Society, saying that they're not accurate ways to diagnose these problems um, and that we do not recommend them, you know, as a group for for that kind of use. My main issue is that, and I have lots of patients who do them. I never order them, but they do them because you can kind of order them yourself, a lot of people. Um, My main issue is that I really dislike when there's bad data out there that is misleading to patients um, and to consumers. But these types of tests, in some cases, can cost a whole lot of money to do. And most people pay for it out of pocket, so paying hundreds of dollars to do a test. And it's not a good test, you know, to start with. So that's really the part that bothers me a whole whole lot. I think it's a waste of money mm-hmm. for a lot of people and a waste of time. And, you know, maybe there will be a test going forward that is that, you know, in that class that will give us good information. But right now it does not exist um, as far as I know. Okay. All right. So elimination diets, it is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. So for those of us who have found that we have reactions and we're still trying to figure it out. Are those on the counter, over the counter uh, histamine medicines like Claritin or a Zyrtec or a Benadryl 
something that would be recommended? It's something that you can try. So we know again for the IgE mediated reaction. So those are true allergies that antihistamines work very well um, to decrease mild to moderate symptoms. So things like itchiness highs. If you have more significant symptoms like um, difficulty breathing or really bad GI symptoms, then you need stronger medications like epinephrine, which are appropriate for severe allergic reactions. And you also need to be seen by a doctor ASAP. For non-IgE-mediated issues, such as intolerances and sensitivities, since we don't really know the mechanism by which it happens, it's hard to say with certainty that antihistamines work. But I do have a subset of patients that I've seen where they do seem to help symptoms a little bit. You know, like I mentioned before, we think that in some cases histamine may be released in addition to other immune mediators that cause symptoms in those people. And so it's not a bad thing to try. You know, antihistamines, generally speaking, are very, um, you know, compared to lots of other medications, are very low-risk medications. The other good thing is that they work relatively quickly. So you could take one or two doses, and you should know if it's going to help you or not. You don't need to use it for, you know, a whole month or anything like that to see if it's effective. And so I think a trial of an antihistamine is reasonable for some people. Um, particularly if you're having skin issues like itchiness and swelling to see if it can curb the symptoms a bit. Okay. So is that something we can use long-term? Does it lose its effectiveness after a certain time? Do we have to worry about, you know, what happens if you're getting a little bit too dependent on them? Mm -hmm. So there are two major types of uh, antihistamines that we use for um, the symptoms I mentioned, like itchiness and swelling and all that. One uh, is short-acting antihistamines. That's like Benadryl. And then there are long-acting antihistamines like the Claritin, Zyrtec, Allegra, things like that. Benadryl, I don't use a whole lot. And it's mostly because there's a lot of data that's been coming out in the past few years that Benadryl use over long periods of time use it cumulatively over your lifetime, is associated with increased issues with dementia as you get older. Now, it's not a causative, so we we can't say 100% Benadryl causes this, but we know in people who have used Benadryl chronically over a lifetime, they tend to be at higher risk for issues like dementia. For that reason, I rarely use Benadryl. The only time I really use it is if I know someone is having an allergic reaction right now and I need something that works really, really fast because it's a short onset medication. Otherwise, I usually use things like um, longer acting things like Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra. And studies so far don't show that those medications have those same long-term impacts that Benadryl and um, other short acting medications have. So for that reason, I feel like at, you know, at least now with the information we have, they're pretty safe to use. In my patients, I've not seen any issues long-term with those medications as far as anything with, with memory, but also nothing with liver function or kidney function or heart function. Or you know, as far as effectiveness over time, it's hard to say. I have lots of patients who anecdotally tell me that they have to switch from Zyrtec to Claritin and then to Allegra and then they can go back. Um, the studies that have looked at this don't show that that happens, but, you know, I have plenty of patients who tell me that. So there's no harm in switching back and forth if you feel like one is becoming a little bit ineffective to switch to another to see if that one works a bit better. On the market, we have 
four different long acting antihistamines available. So you can, you know, you can alternate as much as you need to. There's no information that if you use all four, then they're going to stop working or something like that. There's no data out there that suggests that at all. So I think that that would be okay to do if you feel like it's not working that well. But for most people, you can continue to use the same one uh, as needed or even daily if you needed it without major problems. Oh, okay. And is there any one that's stronger than the other ones in the long category? I am not going to advertise one over the other for all you advertising people out there, but I'll say my favorite is Zyrtec. And I think that it it works the best um, in my patients. Studies, a lot of studies show that between Zyrtec, Allegra, and Zyzol, they're pretty, you know, pretty equivalent. Claritin, in my experience and uh, the data, show that it's not as good. Um, it's it's an older medication. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it just, I think it, it doesn't work that well in a lot of people. Sometimes in little kids, because I feel like they don't need as much antihistamine, it can be mm-hmm. okay. But for most adults, um, I would say actually for all my patients, I almost never for adult patients uh, recommend clarity, but I would recommend the other ones. Okay, thanks for that. So for those of us who also have autoimmune disease, and we can kind of see that there seems to be some kind of correlation between the, f- the food sensitivities or intolerances and the pains that we would normally associate with the autoimmune disease. Is it, is that like kind of in our heads or does one feed the other? Is it like the chicken and the egg approach? What, what's mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? You know, it's it's hard to say. I have a lot of patients who describe, you know, something similar to what you're mentioning. I think it, you know, really is chicken and egg. What's exacerbating what? I don't think it's a causation thing at mm-hmm. all because I think we would have been able to prove that with certainty right. uh, with the studies thus far. But there are some correlations there. And, you know, the data is still being collected. Studies are still going on to see exactly what that link is it's hard to say but i you know for most of my patients i tell them if you feel something or if you think that something is making you feel bad it's a hundred percent reasonable to stop doing whatever that thing is so for instance if you every time you have milk you it makes your joints hurt then you should get you off of the milk even if i can't prove exactly why that is or um, anything like that we should just stop it and we can always readdress it later to see if we can restart different foods and things like that but in general if it makes you feel bad you shouldn't eat it um and you know hopefully the science will catch up uh, as time goes on so we can give you more definitive answers as to why that happens okay i mean that totally makes sense i was just wondering i know personally i have an autoimmune disease and secret confession, I did take one of the food sensitivity tests, but I knew going in, I did the research <laughs> and I knew going in, it was controversial or whatever. Um, I did it anyway. And I will say it's certain things that I thought that were not problematic. So I was like, oh yeah, they were right. This is totally not true. Mm-hmm. But then I eliminated them and I felt better. 
and my inflammation, like my uh, C-reactive proteins Mm -hmm. and my uh, my other inflammation tests were better. So it kind of was more like a starting point to go with for elimination diet for me, not the end all be all. Because a lot of things, I was like, please, no, this can't be problematic. (laughs) So I didn't want a lot of the things to be true because they're things I enjoy. And I know that's part of the controversy, too. It's like, oh, well, you eat a lot of that. So, of course, you're going to have a response on those tests. Mm -hmm. But I have seen that, yeah, some of the stuff is incorrect, but it was a good starting point for me. But the point of me mentioning it at all is just to say that, I've personally seen some differences with taking out food that even wasn't on that, but just in general with elimination diets. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it either, but overall I feel like my autoimmune disease has been better with taking out certain foods. And the thing that was wild to me was that they weren't necessarily the bad foods or things that you would think, it was bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the time when I would do, you know, whatever diet, you know, it would be like a tomato or, a, you know, just certain things that are on those bad infl- anti-inflammatory diets. But taking out something like raspberries or carrots or spinach has been a lot more helpful. So it's just it's interesting how it's just so all over the place and customizable. But mm-hmm. I wonder if it's like what you said that maybe if you're having issues, you know, it's the chicken and the egg where the autoimmune disease is making it problematic for the other thing. And then they're feeding off of each other mm-hmm. so that maybe once, you know, I go into remission or the other things or the leaky gut is healed or something like that, then it will be, you know, back to not being a problem. Right, right. A lot of, you know, I think a lot of things are equilibrium. And if one system is off, it always is going to impact another one. You know, and it may not, just like, you know, I said, it may not cause it necessarily, but everything is interconnected with our bodies and our immune system, whether it's from um, an allergy standpoint or an autoimmune standpoint. And um, we're just still trying to elucidate how those things are interconnected. And I think once we figure that out, you know, then number one, we can develop testing to really best targeted to figure out exactly what's going on. And then number two, we can be more intentional about the types of therapies that we can offer patients. Okay, cool. So are there any resources that you would recommend with the good data? (laughs) where people can go and seek out more information if they have more questions after this? Yeah. So the, you know, I always point to specialty societies as, as really good um, kind of starting points. So the American Academy for um, Asthma, Allergy um, and Immunology, uh, that's a really good one. We call it the Quad AI. So four A's and an I. Um, the same with the American College of uh, Allergy, Asthma, and, in, and Immunology. That's the ACAAI. They have really good just places where patients can go to find out general information about allergies and immunology. Um, also, you know, specifically food allergies and sensitivities and intolerances. 
There's also a group for food allergy specific, which is a patient um, kind of run group called FARE, F-A-R-E. They have really great resources that you can find on online um, and kind of hook up. They have local chapters and things like that. But I would kind of start there. In general, for data and information, if you're into reading papers and stuff, then you can go to PubMed, which houses all of the scientific, um, peer-reviewed publications um, across the world. You can find, you know, U.S.-specific or other countries. But that's a good place to start if you want to do your own kind of digging. I would be wary about just doing regular Google searches because the first things that pop up on Google are the most popular, but they're not necessarily the most accurate. Um, And so I would kind of go to the more, you know, things like FAIR or PubMed, the Quad AI or the ACAAI would be good places to start and then kind of jump off from there. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And I don't have anything else. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share? I'm going to I'm going to jump back to COVID-19 for just 2 seconds. Okay, yeah. Give my my plug about masks, about <laughs> <laughs> washing hands, social distancing. I think it's really important especially, you know, during this time when there's so much information out there and so much changing information out there mm-hmm. to um, know places to get good info. So if you want to know kind of where the where cases are in your area, in your city, your state, the New York Times, their tracker is very, very good. The same with um, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, their tracker is very good and Harvard University. They have a really good tracker too for accurate information. Um, the other thing is that, especially with Harvard, they now have a tracking system where you can see what the situation is um, based on lots of different parameters in your specific uh, location. So they look at testing availability, uh, positive cases, hospitalizations, all these different things to see if your city is in a good space or not in a good space. And then you can kind of base what you're doing, how you're moving around in the community based on that. So if it's a red zone, that means that you need to stop what you're doing. It's not time to go back and normal and do a bunch Mm -hmm. of stuff. But if you're in a green zone, then the situation is a little bit better and different. Um, So I urge everyone to be as informed as possible with good data, good info, and Mm -hmm. to use those resources to really inform what you do. Awesome. Thank you for that. I definitely will be checking that out myself. If we wanted to keep in touch with you, how would we do that? Where can we find you? So I'm on Facebook and Instagram um, at Akilah Jefferson MD. I'm also on Twitter, Dr. Akilah J. You can find me on on all of those platforms. Um, If you have specific questions, you can always send me a message on there and I can answer you as best as I can. Or if there's any, you know, info that you want to see highlighted, I can do that as well. Um, you know, my biggest thing is providing, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but providing good, clear, um, reliable information to people, um, especially on confusing topics, and especially during these uncertain times. Awesome. We really appreciate it. That's exactly what I want. So <laughs> I, I'm happy to have that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been 
a wealth of information and I'm excited for everyone else to hear it. Thank you for having me. So much good information, right? Again, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Akila, you can find her on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, Akila Jefferson Shaw, MD. Of course, I'll add all of this information to the show notes on YoThisCan'tBeLife.com. And you can keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at YoThisCan'tBeLife or join our email list on YoThisCan'tBeLife.com. Thanks for everyone for supporting. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing as that really helps the show. Thanks for rocking with us. Until next time.